Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. Today we are lucky enough to have Yosha Bach with us. And Yosha is a research scientist at the MIT Media Lab and the Harvard Program for Evolutionary Dynamics. And Yosha researches and explores the mind and how it works and how to relate that to computing, including computational metapsychology. So it's fascinating. Uh, I don't know if I understand quite all of it, so that's why we have Yosha on here to explain more. But I'm very curious to learn what he's up to. So Yosha, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. Um, you're very welcome. And uh, before we start with uh, what you're working on now and your current research, can you give us a little bit of uh, your background? Um, well, I'm most interested in how minds work. So I went into academia and started to study computer science and philosophy and then switched into a cognitive science department. And I think that the best bet that we have in order to understand how they do what they do is to treat them as information processing systems. Hmm. So uh, I think that AI is probably our best bet at understanding minds. And this is mostly the reason why the field has been started 60 years ago by people like Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy. Part of AI is about building systems that are better at processing data, that learn better, that control robots or technical systems. Uh, but AI has always also been a science that, or parts of it, that did try to understand the mind by building testable models, basically computer models that uh, reflect the degree to which we understand thinking and in not being able to do certain things, we did see the shortcomings of our theories. And and how did you get interested in starting to research and work with the mind? You know, what prompted you? Was it a, a class you took or a project you worked on? Um, I think it started um, when I was sitting in front of my Commodore 64, <laughs> okay. so um, roughly in 1983. And I typed stuff in, and at some point I realized there is nothing I cannot put into the system. Everything that I can imagine, I can bring to life inside of this computer. And of course, uh, the Commodore 64 had very limited memory and it was very slow. But this is not the biggest problem. That the, uh, of course, you can, you can have computers with more memory that are faster. And I knew that at some point, computers would be much, much faster and have much, much more memory. The real question is, what do you understand? If you understand the causal structure of the system, you can express it as a computer program and it's going to do whatever you want. So you can build worlds in a computer. You can build arbitrary machines in a computer. It's like Lego, but it's unlimited. And so I thought, if I could, what do I want to put inside of the system? And the obvious answer was, I would want to put minds into it. I want to put mm. something in it that understands us, that we can talk to, that um, helps us understand who we are. Yeah, so in some sense, uh, this is how my fascination with artificial intelligence started. And I guess it's fairly typical for many people of our generation. Yes, yes, I've heard that. grew up with computers. Yes, I've heard that from different people from very early on. They have a mm -hmm. beginning with their fascination. So when was the first time that you worked on a project, you know, around AI and uh, trying to model it, model the mind? Hmm. Uh, 
hard to say. So I think that I started uh, my seminars on mind building and uh, cognitive architecture in uh, the late uh, 1990s. Okay. And uh, so this was the first time when I basically started a reading group with other students and we got together about this. And in 2003, we had the first edition of Microbes Diary, which was inspired by a theory by the German psychologist Dietrich Dörner. And um, basically had a theory on how motivation works and how it interfaces with memory and how to build agents based on this and let them run around uh, free and simulation environments. And we thought, let's take these ideas and turn them into a solid project that we can test and work with and run simulations in. And yeah, the, in 2003, we had the first version of that one ready. Mm. And now we are um, somehow working on the third edition of this. Gotcha. Okay. And can you uh, tell us a little bit about your current research, where your interests lie right now? There are um, mostly two things that I'm interested in right now. One is um, the structure of the motivational system, because we are not just systems that are directed on goals. We are goal-finding systems. And there is a structure in us that makes us interested in other things and disinterested in, in still other things. And um, this is the structure of motivation. Motivation is not adaptive, it's resistive. Hmm. It's something that makes us not give in to inertia. It's something that makes us give, uh, get up in the morning and take a shower and put food into our body and so on. We don't do this out of the least resistance. We do it because the motivational system forces us to with pleasure and pain. Hmm. Right? And um, the differences in these systems in, between people uh, manifest as differences in personality. And if you, for instance, are a person that gets uh, more reward for being competent than for being liked by another person, so if you have a stronger need for competence than for affiliation, then you're probably a uh, not very agreeable person. And vice versa, if you have a stronger need for affiliation than people like you, uh, then uh, for competence, you might be a much more agreeable person in a conversation. And in this way, you can start modeling personality and make sense of differences in personality. So this is one of the topics that I'm currently interested in, how to understand interpersonal differences and uh, how to understand um, the rewards that make us human in general. And the other part is learning itself. Um, most of the interesting work and learning right now happens under the label of deep learning. So we build these hierarchical neural networks that more or less autonomously or with reinforcement uh, and sometimes with supervision learn almost arbitrary domains. But there is still a very big gap between our deep learning systems and human cognition. And uh, I try to understand what is missing. So um, one of the things that seem to be missing is compositionality. So, for instance, our thoughts can be put together into new thoughts. Our mental representations can be uh, put into different kinds of simulations that play out in our mind. And the current neural networks are not that compositional yet. So uh, how can we build them into structures that can be taken apart and recomposed in a different context. And this is one of the things that I'm currently interested in. Interesting. And so with the with your first interest, you know, around a way you can model a personality, um, are you interested in kind of ex exploring, um, you know, how to model a personality? Are you actually modeling it computationally? And uh, yes. if you, you are, and if you are, <laughs> how do you do that? Or can you uh, 
describe kind of the structure and, and your thought process behind doing that? So currently we have simple simulations in which we have uh, agents that run around and interact with each other. And by changing the parameters of the motivational system, they will interact with each other in different ways. And we can look at these ways and then compare them, for instance, to human behavior in similar environments. So one paradigm to do this is to build a game world. And in this game world, have uh, your computer agents play that game and have human agents play that game and modify the behavior of the parameters of your computer agents and see if they can mimic the behavior of different personality types. Oh, it's one of the paradigms that we are currently exploring. I don't know how far we will get with this, but we see what we can do with that. that that's, a, that's a smart way to model it. I was wondering how you were exploring that. And can you give an, an example that maybe you've seen in a video game of um, an AI mimicking a human kind of emotion or behavior? Or have you seen something like that? So what we did in the past was that we have been looking at a game where we were uh, collecting resources in an island world. And on this island, you um, would, um, uh, for instance, have to look for food and water and uh, eating herbs and so on. And uh, you have to have, have to avoid damage. And people can play this very same game. And there are some people that tend to play it very safe. That look, for instance, something like a base that they can stick uh, on and where they know the environment and then we go through this space um, all the time. There are people that are very explorative and are very um, risk-taking and so on. And we uh, can model these things by changing parameters in the agents. Uh, a thing that, uh, this was work that was largely done in the Dietrich-Jordan's group in Bamberg. And um, what we did was we ran a simulation on the parameters of the uh, emotional system and of the motivational system, and so if you change the environment in a certain way, what kind of parameter settings do we get? Hmm. Interesting. So, for instance, which kinds of environments will lead to more cooperative agents or more um, aggressive agents, and so on? Right. If it's harder to find food and water, in theory, will yeah. they become more aggressive? Yeah, it could be, but it could also be that you benefit more by forming alliances to defend your resources against mm -hmm. other agents. But for doing this, you need to have a benefit from alliances, so we needed to build something into the agent that it could attack each other and so on, and protect each other and also tear each other apart. So as soon as you start doing this, you need agents that have more and more cognitive ability. Interesting. And how do you know where to start from a algorithm perspective? That sounds like a pretty complex uh, problem to model. Um, in some sense, these uh, agents are very simplistic. Because, okay. um, for these simulations, we used agents that have dramatically simplified perception, decision-making, and reasoning, and so on. It's mostly scaffolding, because we were, were interested in the motivational system. Um, if we build agents that are interested of getting perception, or, um, that, where we aim to get perception right from scratch, we mostly focus on this. So one thing that we have uh, been working on was this to use Minecraft as a paradigm. Oh. It's a very popular game that gives you a Lego-like blocks world. And then have agents that learn to perceive objects in Minecraft and reason about these objects. Interesting. And for this, we have been using um, algorithms that are uh, from deep learning, denoising auto-encoders that can build perceptual hierarchies. And this is a, a very hot topic of research right now. There are a number of teams that work on similar things. 
Yeah. Do Do you have any examples from a uh, Minecraft that, uh, something that you've learned, or have you uh, been working with Minecraft long? So, uh, uh, what we have learned is to pick uh, to tell the different situations in Minecraft apart. So the the agents would recognize uh, in which context it was and what actions would be available in a given context. It learned by reinforcement learning. Um, what I would like to do is get an agent that is able to um, form complex plans and then make complex action sequences based on what it perceives in Minecraft and what it does in Minecraft. Mm. Wow, that would be amazing. Uh, how far? Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying that... Like... Uh, I don't know yet. So uh, <laughs> it also depends because we are currently uh, putting new people together to work on this thing. Um, so it depends where we will put the focus next. Interesting. So you're saying, I mean, ideally you would have your agent go into Minecraft and create a world based on whatever needs are, whatever the needs yeah. they want, they need met. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that would be a, how far, I mean, that seems like a very uh, tough problem to solve. How far away do you think you are from creating an agent that could do something like that? And, uh, so I think that we have agents that can do very simple things in Minecraft and okay. uh, to be able to uh, do things at a human level in Minecraft, I think this is quite some way off stuff. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. And, uh, all right. So let's talk about, uh, your other interests and around uh, deep learning. And, uh, can you tell us a little bit more kind of, the, I guess some of the projects you're working on in order to explore kind of how to improve and the deep learning aspect? Um, I think that um, with respect to deep learning, um, we are not the best team to do this. Right now, the largest teams that exist are, for instance, uh, the Google DeepMind team yeah, yeah. and um, OpenAI and a few others. And uh, I don't think that we put our resource, should put our resources on trying to compete with these teams. So instead, we largely use existing algorithms and try to do things that these algorithms are not doing yet. So um, one of the things that uh, uh, we are currently exploring is how to basically take a network that is made of little modules of little subnetworks and to combine them into a larger network. Huh. Interesting. And what what do you hope that will accomplish? Uh, we hope that we can build networks that um, give us a structure that we can better understand. So, for instance, if you have a network that uh, reasons about a certain domain or gives you a certain result about a certain domain, and uh, you can then look at the structure of this network and know why it got to this result and what it actually mm -hmm. models and how this model works. So you can later on uh, do meter operations on the network. Ideally, you want to get it to networks that can learn how to build new networks themselves. Mm. Basically, hyper networks. That's smart, and I mean that's also that's often a problem problem with the deep deep neural networks is that people don't know exactly why it's working or what worked exactly. And uh, so, do you want to bring try to bring a little more transparency? Yeah, this is one of the goals. Yeah, and uh, in some sense, these networks try to find the best structure. They do this in people, and they do this in the technical systems. And often, these structures can be mapped onto structures that we already know about the world. Uh, sometimes we can help these networks along by taking structure that we already think is in the world and train the networks explicitly to reproduce the structure. But uh, it might also be interesting to look at ways to uh, um, force the network to converge in between or uh, to build 
regulation mechanisms into the network that uh, biases the network to form certain structures instead of others. That is, those that are more compositional and that are easier to reason about. Hmm, interesting. And as you as you said, you know, the ideally you would have you have neural networks that could develop and train new neural networks, right? What would yes. be? What can you give an example of what what that would look like? At the moment, most neural networks are um, working. But you, as an engineer, set up the structure of the network, and then you get the network to adjust to a given domain by, learning, by adjusting the weights of the neurons. And I think you want to have a self-organizing network that basically identifies on its own what the best structure is for a given problem and changes its own architecture so it can adapt mm. to the structure of a problem and also to transfer learning. That is, take knowledge that is picked up in one domain and apply it in another. Yeah, and that would uh, allow the neural network to be to fully optimize itself, you'd think, pretty quick, a lot mm -hmm. faster than we can do it <laughs> by yeah. changing the parameters ourselves. That would be pretty powerful. Is it, Has anybody gotten, where, how close are you to creating something like that, or where are you in that uh, development? I think that in some sense we are at the beginning of these uh, things. Uh, one of the problems that I see is that in our field, machine learning, we often do not take the development that we have in psychology and in other cognitive science fields very much into account and vice versa. Hmm. A lot of people that work in a therapeutic domain or um, that uh, work in psychology um, and they have ideas about what they are doing that are very detailed and we are unaware of those in the domain of uh, AI and machine learning. And I think what we need to do is we get need to get these people together and talk about them and get these different types of theories to mesh. That is, I think that the psychological parts of the cognitive sciences need to understand computation and the ways that functional components can give rise to operations. And uh, people in AI need to understand more about how minds work and achieve the things that they do. Interesting. And yes, and I watched your... Uh your video on, and I think I mentioned it, the um, computational metapsychology, which is, it sounds like a pretty new field. How do you think psychologists could, or what, what type of uh, knowledge could they bring to computation that could help these neural networks? Do you have some ideas or um, have you worked with psychologists? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think I have to put this meta-psychology talk into context. I gave this at a hacker conference in okay. Hamburg. Okay. And uh, this uh, um, is, I think, the largest meeting of hackers and nerds in the world. Oh, wow. It's super exciting uh, to be there. And uh, I basically tried to give a talk that I would like to have listened to 20 years ago when <laughs> I, in some sense, started my uh, studies in the field and had lots and lots of questions. And many of the uh, ideas that I present in this talk are very speculative. So uh, it's, it's not like this is a body of work that we can take and uh, put to the test right now. It's largely an attempt to make sense of the domain and identify possible ways to reason about how we form knowledge, how we form opinions, how we interact with each other, how we make a model of the world, and how our minds uh, relate to the universe around them. Interesting. Okay. That's so in some sense, this is way more uh, philosophy than it is uh, computer science or uh, machine learning. 
which is a which is an important in its own right to kind of uh, figure out to think about the future and how this will all be put together mm -hmm. um, in many different yeah. ways. All right, and uh, so how? Um, so you're at you're at MIT. So how how do you do you get the, uh, actually my, MIT funding uh, ended last month. So right now oh. I'm affiliated with the Harvard program of evolutionary okay. dynamics. <laughs> That was my question. Was how, I was curious how you're funded because you're doing such a interesting work that's you know it's a it's farther off, which is important work. Um, but okay, so you're at you're at Harvard now. Yeah, it was it was really exciting to uh, be at the MIT Media Lab, and uh, it, I really enjoyed um, working there and teaching. You have uh, amazing students and are very curious. They come from very different domains, and uh, what I enjoyed most was the opportunity to get a bunch of students together, many of them doing their PhD in a related field, and ask them, what do you think it is that we don't understand yet hmm. about the mind? What are the areas that we are not working on yet and we sh that we should be working on in 10 years from now? Hmm. Do, do you remember any, uh, any of the answers? Yeah, so uh, this is what we have been discussing. One of the things was... Um, Basically, the structure above neurons. So, how do groups of neurons interact and form structure in the mind? The interaction between motivation and learning and um, mental representations. One of the things that seems to be very significant for us is what we call differential attention. Our measuring learning systems pay pretty much the same attention to anything in the data. They just try to find structure in the data. And uh, people don't. People look at some stuff in much more detail mm. uh, than on others. So, for instance, we look at faces a lot. Whenever we are in a crowd and the person comes up, we look at their face and try to make sense of that face. So there seems to be a reward system that makes us super interested in faces. And that is, the system is online before the uh, most of the mental um, representation and uh, visual learning is online. So even babies start looking at faces at a time when they don't have much visual cognition yet. So there seem to be some simple pattern matching that already pattern matching mechanisms that direct our eyes on faces at a very young age. And those people that don't have this, they seem to be developing close-up agnosia. This is the inability to tell faces apart. These people are often very smart and so on. So I had a colleague um, in the previous department who could not tell his students apart by looking at them. Huh. Instead, he uh, had to look at their uh, hair color and uh, the way they dressed and their voices and so on. And he was also able, uh, able to read their emotional expression in their faces. Wow, interesting. Um, oh. And I, I think it's not because uh, he had a defect in his brain and in his cortex because he was super smart, obviously. Uh, no, he probably, in his um, brain, this part that pays attention to faces was not working. So uh, he didn't have the exaggerated attention for faces that most of us have. And I think that we probably don't have just this system for faces. We have similar systems for social cognition and for several other domains that, domain that we're not completely aware of and that form our world model into something that is distinctly human. Yeah, interesting. Another topic that we don't understand yet is uh, load distribution. Um, our brain needs to distribute its resources to the different tasks in the world. It's not like that we can do everything. We only can pick a few things in the world that we model with very high detail. How can we distribute the cognitive load over the different areas of the brain? How we, can we make sure 
that most of the new ones are doing similar work or doing the same amount of work, doing something valuable. So in either of those areas, how, how do you, I mean, would those be areas of interest for research? And if so, how, how would you research something like that? It seems uh, maybe hard to get, be hard to get the data. <laughs> um, as an AI person, the good thing is that you can work from an engineering perspective. So you might have a, a problem and then you need to define the problem properly as something that you can work on. So for instance, uh, one question might be, uh, how can you um, build a neural architecture um, that um, uh, where you can make sure that you're, uh, you have a fixed number of neurons and they all contribute to the reward in an optimal way so you can maximize the global reward by maximizing some local function? What could that function be? How can you communicate in the network? That would, could be a starting question, and then you need to divide it to sub-questions that you can actually work on, and they, you can then come up with different designs and then mm-hmm. compare the performance of the different designs with uh, given benchmark tasks. Hmm, that's smart. Okay. Well, unfortunately, I think we're we're almost done with this uh, podcast. This is a fascinating stuff that I could talk about for a long time because I have a lot to learn. Uh, about uh, especially some of the I guess you could call it more soft issues you know the mm-hmm. that's why what you're working on is so interesting like deep, deep learning you know that that's out there and how it works is there's lots of papers and resources but what you're working on is more kind of the soft issues which is kind of the hard part and that's what I think we'll need in order to uh, almost create the an, an AI brain and uh so, so I'm curious. How... To me, one of the most interesting questions is what does AI teach us about how we work? What are the things that we can take over into other domains? And there is a lot of those things. So uh, I do think that using AI metaphors and insights, we can understand some parts of our minds better. Hmm. Of course, then there's also the practical aspect. Uh, right now, we are developing technologies um, and the field is making rapid progress. Uh, every couple of months, we have a bunch of groundbreaking papers and uh, insights. And there's a backlog with respect to application. That is, there are so many things that we can do now technically and that haven't been turned into products yet. So the next years are going to be very exciting. Hmm. Can you, do you have an example of one such uh, technology and paper that came out that you think could... Uh turned into a, a product that... Well, if you look at how this field of deep learning started, it was with a paper that um, was training a network with 20 million frames from YouTube. This was done by Andrew Ng and the uh, group um, at Google and Stanford. Yeah. And they this was uh, four years ago. And when they did this, they came up with a network that was trained with unsupervised learning. After three days, it was able to recognize images uh, in a database, uh, ImageNet, with uh, an accuracy of, I think, 17%. Uh And back then, this was much, much better than anything that existed before that was handcrafted or programmed in any other computer vision paradigm. And last year, our computer systems got so good that they outperformed humans Mm -hmm. in recognizing these images. And our uh, phones are not that good at recognizing images yet. They start at being pretty good at recognizing language and speech. 
And in a few years, uh, the speech, uh, speech recognition is probably going to be better than people's speech recognition. And we will have image recognition in cameras uh, or phones that approaches human performance in a few years from now. Hmm. And then there comes the uh, overall world cognition. Uh, maybe in a decade from now, our phones will have a good idea of where they are and what's happening around them. And imagine you are a small child and you are walking next to your parent. You already always know where your parent is and who your parent is, right? So your parent doesn't need to authentify itself. You also know what's roughly happening around you. You know the context. You know that uh, your parent is currently with you in the subway and is using the subway and wants to go from A to B. Imagine that your phone is constantly observing its environment and has the situational awareness and can give you contextual help of what you are doing and keep track of what you are doing. And also will know if if you lose your phone and immediately react to this. So uh, there are a few things that we, we don't really imagine right now and that are giving rise to very exciting applications in the very near future. Well, I, I love that uh, vision of the future. That sounds... Uh... That's another whole podcast. I'm curious how you would model, especially that I like the idea of walking next to the parent and then all the things that can come up because because of all the issues. Um, yeah. So uh, our phone won't be as smart as a child in the next few years, but maybe its vision will be as good as the one of a dog, for instance, and huh. um, get an idea of this environment. Interesting. All right. Well, that, I think that's a great way to end the podcast. And, uh, Yosh, I definitely appreciate your time and your thoughts, and I love the, the research that you're doing. And I'll have to keep a close eye on it as you uh, continue to push forward. Thank you for having me. Definitely. And thanks, everyone, to, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, mm -hmm. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Yosha. Bye. Bye.